Section 3 of The Black Cat, Volume 3, Number 1, October 1897. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Black Cat, Volume 3, Number 1, October 1897. Section 3. Love and Avarice by Leonard Freeman Burbank. The day was done. André and Marie Acutin were eating their simple evening meal. The little kitchen in which they sat was such a room as one may see in almost any of the farming districts of Normandy, small and neat. The furniture was plain, but the white muslin curtains at the windows and a shelf filled with geraniums in the bloom gave it an air of comfort, and Ray and his wife were old. The deep wrinkles and hard lines of their faces, their bent figures and halting gait, told a tale of trouble and hard work. I do wish Jean would come home, said the woman, as she arose from the table and began clearing away the dishes. It's fifteen years since he went away, and it do seem as if he might come back to see his old mother. If he had only been easy like Lusmigant and stayed at home, how happy we should have been. I told you, replied the old man, that you should let well enough alone. The lad was a fine boy and would have been forehanded here as well as in America. I do believe if you can't get your porridge among your own folks, strangers won't give it to you. It was your high notions that did it, and now we must bear it the best we can. Marie was silenced, and without saying more, André went out and sat on the low wooden seat beside the door, while his wife washed the dishes and tidied up the room. When she had made the house neat, she went and stood beside her husband, the sun was setting, making the rows of bright-colored flowers in the little garden glow in the rich light. The apple trees were white with their snowy promises of harvest. In the distance, the poppy besprinkled, rain waved in the gentle breeze. Ah, oh, Marie, he said, taking her hard and wrinkled hand in his, Normandy is beautiful in May. She did not heed his remark. Drawing her hand away, she said, I am going to mind Dame Rob, and may not come home until late. The old woman is mightily used up and isn't long for here. Don't sit up for me. Taking his pipe from his mouth, the old man slowly arose and faced his wife. I don't like this, he said. Before the lad went away, you were always working and saving to set him up when he got big. He went and left us. You made him. He has been away for fifteen years, and ever since he left us, you have been working and saving for him when he comes back. What good are we getting out of life? Not any. 
I think it is time to stop. Why, André? You wouldn't have the old woman suffer for want of care, would you? No, he continued. But it is not damn Rob that you care for. It's her money that you want to save for the boy. Without replying, Marie Acoutin moved up the street as fast as her bent form and halting steps would let her, and was soon lost to view in the gathering gloom. Her husband watched her retreating figure, not without feelings of sorrow. When she could no longer be seen, he relit his pipe, which had gone out during the discussion, and resumed his place on the settle. More than thirty years before, he and Marie had married and moved into the little cottage. She was a beauty then. On market days, when they stood in the great square of Rouen, selling their vegetables and flowers, many a passer-by would stop to look at the pretty flower vendor and her handsome husband. Those were happy days. When their child was born, they called him John. His winning ways gained for him the goodwill of all the village people. André and Marie were justly proud of him. I don't want him like we are, his mother would often say, as she and her husband talked about his prospects and planned for the future. He must be like the fine folks that used to come to the chateau when you were under butler and I ladies' mate, André. Perhaps so, but it takes money and piles of it to be like them, the father would reply. I know that, dearie, but we can earn and save, and when he grows up he will have enough to start on. It will be a fine thing to have our John a great man. Marie Acoton was one of those people who could love intensely. Yet such was her nature that many passions, many hopes, could not find a place in her heart at one time. Gradually, the motherly instinct great the ascendancy, and while she yet loved her husband, she did not feel towards him as she had before the child was born. Her ruling passion was love for her boy. For him, she lived, toiled, and hoarded, the fruits of her labors. Year after year, she gave her life to him. One morning, coming from confession in St. Juan, before she took her place beside the little cart in the great square, she heard a man say to his companion that America was the best place on earth for a young man to become rich and prosperous. Her ideas of America were vague, but she at once resolved that John should go to that place wherever it was. A dozen times she repeated the word to herself that she might not forget it. An hour later, when the man stopped before the little cart, she made bold to ask about this America which he had spoken of. On their way home, she talked incessantly about that strange country and John, until André, wearied with her prattle, got down and walked far in advance of the cart. From that day she never wavered in her determination that John 
should go to the land of riches. If sometimes she said to herself, John might stay here to help about the place, yet her motherly ambition kept her to her resolve. When the boy was sixteen, she had saved enough to pay his passage and start him in life, and in spite of Andre's protests, John was sent across the sea to make his fortune. It most breaks my heart to have him go, she said when the neighbors came to bid him goodbye. But a mother must not stand in the way of her child. He can love me as well away from me as here under my nose. She saw him go down the road and across the fields. Then she went into the house and shut herself away in her boy's room from her neighbors and husband. The little cottage seemed very lonely after John had gone. In all those years of living and caring for the boy, the wife had grown blind to the needs of her husband. Now that her idol had left her, he who remained behind neither cared for nor would receive the little kindnesses and tokens of affection that were resumed after many years of neglect. Not that they lived unhappily together. Hundreds of families have the same existence. But the poetry of their early married life had become prose. They both kept to their work. Andre that he might support himself and wife, and Marie that she might save for John. Every sou that she got was carefully hidden away, along with the letters that came from over the sea from her boy. When she had nothing else to do, which was seldom, or when a moment could be stolen from work, she would take from its hiding place the shining hoard, thinking as she touched each piece of her John and the good it would do him. When she could, she would take from her husband's money a few satims to add to her own store. The years passed, the pile grew slowly but steadily, while the old age crept on with relentless pace. She was no longer young, and her beauty had gone. When she stood in the marketplace of Rouen, no one noticed. Joanna must go with us to market today, she said to her husband one morning. Her voice trembled and a great tear rolled down her deep, wrinkled face. Joanne was her niece. I have ceased to be attractive. Joanne is beautiful and must take my place. If she succeeds, I will stay at home to work in the fields and care for the sick. I shall be just as useful and John's pile will grow. Joanne took her aunt's place, and Marie never went to market again. Mornings when Marie saw Joanne leave for Rouen, the tears would come to her eyes as she thought of the days when she was young and beautiful. Even the dullest of us have times of reflection when the past comes back with a startling clearness. As old André Cotan sat there in the twilight, the years seemed to roll by in a long, dismal procession. The light of his pipe went out, his head rested against the casement of the door. He had fallen asleep. A slight noise made by opening and shutting the gate aroused the sleeper. Before him stood a man. He was well dressed, 
wore a full beard and carried in his hand a small bundle. My good man, he said, can you direct me to the inn in this town? There is no inn here. Strangers don't come this way. You will find an inn at the next place across the fields or at Rouen. I have traveled a long way and am tired. Can't you give me lodging? said the intruder. Andre hesitated a moment. No, I don't think I can, he said. You see, Dame Acotin is away and might not like it. I don't think I can. Did you say your name was Acotin? said the stranger. Yes, replied the old man. I am André Acotin. My wife's name is Marie. I know a John Acotin in America, continued the young man. You know John? You? Why, heaven bless you, come in. And if Marie don't like it, well, well, she won't mind if you tell her of her John. The old man seized the stranger and led him into the kitchen. Well, well, you know our John. Sit down while I make a light. It's a blessing you came this way. He bustled about to light a candle and quickly set before the stranger the best he could find in the little cupboard. Then he seated himself near his guest. Now, tell me all about my son, he said. Is he well? Is he rich? Will he soon come home? Tell me all. Yes, answered the stranger. He is well, and in the years since he left home, he has grown from a big boy into a strong, thoughtful man. Just like me, interrupted the old man. Just like me. But go on. He speaks of you often and never sees to think of you and his mother. He loves you both. Of course, and we both love him, said André, while his mother works night and day to save money for him. The young man laughed, yet had the candle given more light, old André might have seen the look of pain that came to the face of the young man. Works to save money for him? Why, he is rich, richer than anyone in this village, so he tells me, said the guest. But why don't he come home and let us share his fortune? asked André. We have worked and saved for him. He is a thoughtless, wicked lad not to help us in our old age. I told Marie she was a fool, and now I know it. Do not say that. He is working for you. Soon he hopes to come home and make you rich and happy all your life. If he don't come soon, it will be too late. We shan't want his help. In his excitement, the old man moved the candle, which at best gave him a dim light near his guest. As he did so, his eyes caught the flash of the ring upon the stranger's finger. It was one of those silver bands such as the peasants of Normandy wear, of no value, yet peculiar to themselves. He gazed at it for some time, then reaching across the table took the stranger's hand in his and examined the bauble more closely. 
my son used to wear a ring like that, he said. His mother gave it to him when he left home. And my mother gave me this, replied the stranger. The old man looked up. The smiling eyes of the guests told their story, and in an instant they held each other in a close embrace. Heaven be praised for this! Come near the light, my boy. My eyes are dim. Let me look at you. Your mother will be wild with light. I will go to tell her at once. No, father, said the son. Let her continue her good work. Don't let her know until morning. She will be tired when she comes home, and seeing me may be too much for her. Let her know in the morning, and tomorrow we will have a holiday. Neither you nor she shall ever work again. But come, father, let us go into the garden. It is warm here. The two men left the room and arm in arm wandered through the garden and out into the fields. The moonlight shone upon them as they talked. The clock in the village struck ten. We must go in now, said the son. We are both tired. Your room is ready for you, said old André. Ever since you went away, your mother has had it in readiness for you when you came back. Good night. Heaven bless you, as it has us all. Good night. Taking the candle, the young man climbed the short flight of stairs and entered the little room. It was just as he had left it years before. There were his kite, his top, and all the playthings that he used to love so well, while on the table was a bunch of fresh flowers. The perfume came to him like a breath from heaven. As John was very tired, he was soon asleep, dreaming of childhood scenes. With the father it was different. His son's coming home gave him so much happiness that he could not sleep. Besides, he must tell Marie, when she came back, that a stranger was upstairs. He laughed softly as he thought how curious she would be and how surprised in the morning when she should find out that it was John. Sometime after midnight, the wife returned. Old Dame Rob was dead. Marie had seen the work of the great destroyer so many times that his awful presence did not disturb her. She was droning a song of the people. She had hardly entered the house when André aroused to tell her the news. What? You up? She said. Get to bed. Shh! Don't make so much noise. There is a visitor upstairs in the boy's room, said André. The old woman stood glaring at her husband. Surprised into silence, which gave him a chance to offer an apology for his offense. He came here, he continued, and begged of me to take him in. He was all tired out with walking, and so I let him sleep in the boy's room. The old woman turned livid with rage. Beast, she hissed, a stranger in my boy's room. I won't have it. I will go and pull him out. And she moved towards the door which led to the stairs. 
Andre caught her and held her fast. Marie, he said, have a care. The man has money, heaps of it. He will pay us well, more for his night's lodging than we can earn in weeks. At mention of the money, the woman became calmer, but she did not cease talking about it until after they were in bed. We must charge him a good price, she said. It's no small thing to take a stranger into one's house. He ought to bless heaven that he has a place to lay his head, instead of having to tramp across the fields. If he is rich, he can pay well, and our boy's pile grows so slow. Come, come, Marie, enough of this. I want to sleep, so say no more about it. I will settle with him in the morning. You? You settle with him? No, not you. Why, you would let him go without paying a sou, and our boy's pile be no larger. André Acotin was soon asleep, not so his wife. The thought of the gold set her brain on fire. She could not sleep. A dozen times she asked herself how much she should charge the stranger for his night's lodging. Surely a shining gold piece would not be too much. He had been saved a long walk. Perhaps he would give her too. If she told him how she was saving that her boy might come home, no doubt he would be generous. A fever seized her. She clutched her hands together as if she already had the coins in her possession. Supposing he refused to pay her more than a few silver pieces. No, no, he would not do that. And yet he might. Why should she not take just a few bits while he slept? She would be sure of them then, and very likely he would never miss them. John needed them more than this man. But if she should be found out the gendarme would arrest her, and she would be sent to prison. The thought overpowered her, and she lay quiet still. How loud and terrible seemed to her the heavy, regular breathing of her husband. She could endure it no longer. The darkness and the stillness affected her, and her great desire to possess the money took complete possession of her. Rising from bed, she put on her old short skirt and a heavy blouse. Her heart beat fast, and its throbs sounded so loud to her that she felt as if it must awaken her husband. She looked at him, but he was fast asleep. With stealthy tread, she climbed the stairs. At the open door, she stopped to listen. The breathing of the sleeper came to her distinct and clear, yet it was almost lost in the beating of her own heart. For a moment she hesitated. A thousand thoughts of other days surged through her brain as she stood there, but the one great desire that had brought her there urged her on. 
The moonlight filled the room with a mellow glow. She could see the form of the stranger. The upper part of the face was hidden by his arm, thrown over the forehead, his clothes folded and laid over a chair, and on the table beside the flowers she had put there in the morning was a pile of shining gold. She could see nothing else. The gold pieces fairly glowed before her excited vision. They seemed to burn great holes in her brain and fill her whole soul with a wild delirium. She thought only of that beautiful yellow pile and of her boy John. She felt like screaming with delight, but her parched lips gave no sound. Silently and carefully she tiptoed her way into the room like a cat approaching a mouse, and stood before the table and the golden treasure. The man slept. She took a few of the gold pieces and put them in her pocket. Then she reached for more. A slight noise stopped her. The man moved in his sleep. In her excited fancy, she thought he was awake and had discovered her taking the gold. Her agitation knew no bounds. The blood coursed through her veins with quickened speed. The strength of fury and despair came to her. She turned and with a spring seized the sleeper by the throat while her knees struck him upon the chest. The shock awoke him and he tried to free himself but the bedclothes hampered him. He could not speak for she held with a grasp of iron. The frenzy was on her and to all his efforts she opposed an irresistible pressure. For an instant he looked into the face that bent over him, and like one in an evil dream, knew it for the face of his mother, but still like one in a dream, struggled vainly to speak. Little by little his convulsed writhings lessened. In a few moments he ceased to struggle and was still. He was dead. Relaxing her grip, for her strength was gone. She got down from the bed, catching her foot in the coverings as she did so. For a moment she thought that the man had seized her, and she turned pale with fear. Giving a fierce pull at her clothes, she loosened the coverings of the bed, and the hand of the man was exposed. The ring upon the finger glistened in the moonlight and attracted her attention. Raising the hand fearfully in hers, she turned the ring upon the finger. A sickening fear overcame her, for the little silver band has a strange, familiar look. No, no, she muttered to herself. Her heart almost stopped beating. With a terrible despair, she seized the head of the man and dragged it into the strong moonlight. Then... She understood. In the morning, while dressing himself, André Acotan softly hummed a tune such a long years ago he used to sing when he wished to send little John into the land of dreams. Marie has awakened before me, 
he thought, but I will have my little surprise. I will go to wake John. He smiled at the thought of the meeting. Slowly he climbed the stairs and stood at the door of John's room. He saw his son upon the bed, and kneeling beside him, the mother, singing her gentle lullaby, the lullaby of a mother and a woman breft of reason. It was only for an instant. The next moment the disease, that of the heart which for so many years he had feared, mercifully smote him. He was again with his son. Years have passed since then, yet the peasants, when they go by the deserted house and the barren fields, still cross themselves and utter a prayer. End of section 3